It's Radio Mysterioso. We're here with uh, Robert Larson, as I said, one of the co-founders of uh, The Excluded Middle, also a host of his own radio show on uh, KUCI Irvine on Thursdays from 4 to 5, is it, Robert? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's called Out the Rabbit Hole. Everybody's interviewing each other. I was on there last week along with a few of our friends. However, this week uh, we get to talk about whatever we want, and there's only three of us because... Um, Walter's here with us, and it's not what we have like last week, like five people at once or four or something like that. Wow. Something like that. Four, I think. Yeah. I haven't really talked, <coughs> excuse me, too much about um, the Excluded Middle, the magazine that kind of started us all on this arc to uh, radio and whatever else we're doing with our lives. Me with the writing. Robert's done writing, too. He's, uh, his writings appeared in actually the um, After Dark Coast to Coast uh, magazine. Robert, how did we meet? Did we meet at a club or something? Yeah, we did meet at a club someplace in, um, I don't want to say South Central, but kind of near. It was uh, Jabberjaw. Pico. It was Jabberjaw, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. 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 Uh, some kind of weird art event in that you had a subgenius shirt on, and I'm like, hey, that's cool. And uh, <laughs> it kind of took off from there. We found out we had a lot of common interests, and uh, I don't know, I think in those days it wasn't so easy to find people, well, intelligent people that were into kookology, you know, alternative ideas, and you know, there wasn't the internet then, and uh, I don't know, it just seemed kind of few and far between to find like-minded souls. You know, when you found you were like, oh, whoa, you know, because I, I met Peter because there was a party with a group of people called the Space Club. I don't remember even how I heard about it, but I met him there. I was dressed up as Whitley Strieber, so that was, uh, what, 91 or something. Anyway, very soon after that, <clears throat> for some reason, we were all sitting around drinking and decided that the doing our own magazine would be a good idea. I don't know why we thought it would be a good idea. However, Robert's uh, brother-in-law, if he hadn't been with us there in the beginning, there probably wouldn't have been any magazine because he did all the layouts. Right. We were just, I think we were talking about a real basic newsletter with just kind of print and not really much in the way of graphics or anything, just so we could share information with people. And uh, and there were a lot of zines out like that at the time, but you're going to limit yourself with something like that. My brother-in-law's graphic designer said, oh, hey, wait a minute, I'll help you guys out and made it look really cool. Even our first simple issue that was just black and white and only about, what, 16 pages maybe? Oh, I don't know, 16, 24, something like that. had to go in multiples of four. Yeah, anyway, and, but it had all these great graphics in it, and the layout was very cool, and it just gave us this sort of instant uh, cachet that I think other people didn't have and caught the attention of a lot of people. You you came up with some great ideas for artwork. That, uh, what, what was that we had on the cover that was just weird? It was uh, a collage from Max Ernst <clears throat> of uh, these giant wheels um, in, during a thunderstorm kind of falling or dipping through a river or something like that. Well, yeah, it was a surreal thing, but yet it had a sort of connotation of UFOs. And uh, so it was like, okay, these guys are interested in things like that, but yet they have a, eh, they're coming from more of a, an art background and have a, they are interested in the surreal and things like that. And uh, so I think it, it sort of weeded out some of the, UFO kooks that don't have a sense of humor, sense of humor or a sense of history, and it kind of got people who do have that more interested in what we were doing. Yeah, <clears throat> we ended up meeting a lot of 
Well, there were more people than we thought that had that kind of uh, take on things. It's so funny because within just the first couple of issues, we started meeting really interesting people, and people started submitting things, and we found this little clique of characters who you know, were fascinated by all of this, but put it together in ways that not everybody else out there was. And then, uh, you know, our whole group, Smiles Lewis and Paul Rydeen and uh, West Nations and the whole group, it, it was a fun time. Yeah, and then we met every year and did these campouts, but then people have started chickening out on them. Or they've, they've, they've actually, uh, life has gotten in the way, unfortunately. So now it's, uh, we do it virtually or, or by radio show like we did it last week. And I kind of miss meeting up with them. I mean, they all went on, um, one of them uh, went on to write uh, Sex and Rockets, the Jack Parsons biography. Adam Gorightly has written quite a few books now, Shadow Over Santa Susana, about the Manson family and a uh, biography of Carrie Thornley, among other things. And uh, you're doing your radio show, and I'm doing this blog, and I've gotten a couple books. But if we hadn't met and all that stuff hadn't fallen together, I don't, I'm don't. i not sure we, we'd been doing this stuff. So I feel really lucky about that. Yeah, I, I think it did put us on a path that we might not have otherwise been on, or it, the path certainly would have been different. Um, and, yeah, I... I it's it's interesting now where we're just we're still working on all of these things and you've got these uh, great books out and uh, we're I, I don't know I, I just uh, I lost a little bit of my train of thought there but uh, <laughs> that's okay um, yeah it, it's it's been I, I know I would have been doing different things now if I hadn't have connected with all of you back in the day yeah <clears throat> and it's still happening I mean we still meet people you meet a lot of people through your show. Who are the kind of people, uh, kind of guests you've had on your show? Because you're uh, on out the rabbit hole. You have so many different uh, subjects you discuss. So, uh, like a, a, wi- a, a wider, diverse, arranged uh, array of people than I do. Who, who, who have you had on well, your show? I think what it is is because I, I sort of did this little little trick with my show. <laughs> I had a show a few years ago that was called Cartoon Drama that was more specifically about these kind of mystical, paranormal things that you and I are all interested in. Uh, but uh, now when I came up with this new show a couple years ago, uh, Out the Rabbit Hole, the theme of it is exploring notes exposing toxic contrived realities and exploring enchanted ones so it's kind of like what i used to do exploring enchanted realities all of these things that are just kind of mysterious and and still doing that but i'm also doing this thing of exposing toxic contrived realities because i got real concerned around the year 2000 2001 and with the incoming uh, bush regime that was not actually elected and how that this we were always being presented with this false reality, and, and mainstream media and, and politicians always do that to some extent, but it just got kicked into high gear, and it was like we were being put down into this rabbit hole of this false reality. I'm like, wait a minute. People need to know that, that that's not true. I mean, it, it's so intense that, I mean, you can watch the news every day and just catch things that are, if not outright lies, they're just so misleading, it, it's people will never see what's really going on. Like, they're always talking about the war in Iraq. Well, we're not fighting a war in Iraq. We, we fought a war in Iraq, and we won. Now we're involved in an occupation. 
And so it's like it, it, it takes people off track of what's really going on. And, and, and the, people say, well, you know, we've got to fight the war because if we don't, we might lose. Well, <laughs> that, that's not what's going on. What we're doing is we're occupying a country. And, and if, people, if you say that to people, I think more people than, than now want us to get out of there, even more would. Yeah, because it's a, why are we occupying somebody else's country? There's a civil war going over the, on over there. They're fighting a war. Right. And we're just in the middle of it. They might their lose. Country. And so, so that's what I mean about this toxic, contrived reality, and I want to, like, expose things like that. And, uh, and it, you know, it's like the war on terror. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> How do you fight a war on terror? How do you fight a war on a tactic? I, I'm not the only one saying that, but yeah. it's, uh, I, and I think that needs to be repeated because it's just this people go along with things that are, are really bad for their own health in several ways because they're so out of touch with the truth. It's something we've discussed before, and it came up when we were doing the magazine, and it's if something doesn't affect a great deal of people, great deal of people in a a population on a very basic level and in their everyday lives, they tend not to care as long as everything else seems to be going okay. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And and these uh, neocons and everybody who's pushing the war, these guys are pretty slick and savvy, and they know that. And they know... (laughs) Oh boy, we had that Vietnam War and we were having the draft. People got really outraged and out in the streets against us in really large numbers because they knew it was their ass that was going to go over there and get shot. Right. And now it's a, so it's like, well, we can't have the draft. So, you know, we, we, um, people are not feeling it that, that acutely in that way. And then they're not feeling like they're, it's hitting them in the pocketbook either because, uh, Again, it's this false reality. We got this huge debt and this deficit, and it's just—we owe all this money to China. We're borrowing money from China, but people aren't feeling it now. Their kids and grandkids are going to be paying that debt off, but people are just like in La La Land about it. And mainstream media just never, never talks about that, and so I feel it's my duty to do that. And uh, it, I think we're in a really precarious situation. I think we're we're as close to 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 fascism in this country as we've ever been. I'm not saying we're there or we are that close, but we are inching closer all the time. Well, actually more than inching closer. And you see the the civil liberties that people are just gladly giving up because they don't see themselves as the uh, Jose Padilla, even though he's an American citizen who had his rights just completely stripped and was locked up with no access to a lawyer for two years. But as far as I'm concerned, if they can do that to him, they can do that to anybody. Right, it, but it, they it hasn't happened to just anybody yet. It's a guy. Oh, he's kind of a brown-skinned guy. He's kind of got some Islamic tendencies. Oh, he's not one of us. Uh, you know. So yeah. Well, wait till and, you can't ride your motorcycle where you want, or take your boat out to the river every week, or whatever. Uh, yeah. So so anyway, that's why I, I branched off into more of those things. I, I got a little bit alarmed about what was going on, and uh, I've. I've done quite a few shows on on election fraud and and most people out there are pretty hip to, to the fact that George W Bush didn't cleanly win the 2000 election but uh, a lot of them out there are really clueless that he also stole the 2004 election and that's not just me saying that there's several people who've put a lot of effort into documenting it and that uh, there's no evidence that he actually got more votes in that election there's a lot of evidence that it was rigged <laughs> more than 
the 2000 election. We talk a lot about that on the show. We've talked a lot about 9-11, and there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there about 9-11, and I don't buy into all of them. I think there's a lot of really kooky people, but at the same time, the official version of what happened on that day just doesn't really hold up. All the facts that are out there don't fit into that scenario. So some something funny happened uh, other than what you know, we, we know that planes went into buildings that day and the towers came down, but other than that, you know, it, it, it's a little bit murky. And, and at the very least, it, it's why were our defenses so compromised on that day? And I have an idea about that. that. fully investigated? So, you know, I'd like to talk about that as well. Well, just, uh, Walter, toxic just... Reality. I have an idea about uh, why it was so compromised and why it appears it's not being investigated. Sure. Uh, uh, coming from a... I come from... 18 years in counterintelligence, counterespionage, national security. I'm affectionately known as evil government man here. Mm-hmm. And um, I've looked at the conspiracy theories, I, you know, like everybody, I've looked at it closely. And coming from my professional perspective, um, I began to realize the uh, the... Uh, what really raised a flag for me was the fact that our our systems and our processes did seem so compromised. Um, with a with a counterintelligence investigator hat on, um, my thought was that yeah, absolutely they look compromised, and I'm thinking that there was somebody who either wittingly or unwittingly, and this can happen unwittingly, that was in one of the several agencies that was part of the. counter-terrorist exercises going on that very day um, had, uh, you know, talked out of turn, or if they were a witting source, which is a bigger problem, they had fed some intelligence entity collecting on the United States the information that there would be these exercises going on that there w- on various dates and what they would entail, even in a general way. And this intelligence, of course, ended up in the hands of the guys who did it and so therefore you would have a counterintelligence uh, situation a problem which yeah is egg on our face but if if that's the case and if if i can see that from the outside um, with the experience um, i'm sure guys from the inside saw it and if that is the case if that's what happened i promise you there is an investigation going on but it would be classified just as a matter of course um, you would think that they would indicate that to just kind of give everybody some friggin' idea, you know, rather than leave everyone in the dark. But then again, maybe not. And, and that's that's my thinking on a possibility of what the big secret is. Well, that, that's quite possible, you know. But you're right. They, if that's the case, they should be telling us there's something went wrong. We're investigating it, but there's just this seeming to be a cover up, and and. Uh, uh, right. it, seems to me at the very least somebody was in your scenario is like a criminal negligence and somebody should be made to answer for that and if they are investigating let let us know that there's an investigation going on well we can't say what it is but it's going on so Mm -hmm. i just think it uh, by not telling us anything and leaving all these loose threads it Mm -hmm. it it fuels all these conspiracy theories and uh Mm -hmm. uh, but uh you know it, it, it does seem a little strange that the there was no defense of the Pentagon. I don't know. Aren't there supposed to be anti-aircraft uh, protecting the, that building? Why, why wasn't anything done in that respect? Well, I, I can tell you, having worked a lot around D.C., I, um, I never saw 
the weaponry and the artillery and uh, such that certainly exists nowadays. Um, you know, since 9-11, it was the first time I ever saw in my years of being around Washington and driving past the Pentagon the uh, the artillery and and the, you know the mechan the tanks and the anti aircraft guns and stuff right there just parked right off the highway in certain spots, um, but you know pre nine eleven we didn't think we needed to have them sitting right there. You would think that the Pentagon, uh, what runs our military, would protect it. I don't know. It's just it's just me. I don't. I, I find that bizarre that, that that would be that much of an oversight. Uh, but um, and again, if that was, who was in charge of making that decision, and why haven't they answered for that? So it, it's just. I, I just think there's a lot of things that that need to be answered. Otherwise, people are going to keep coming up with these crazy uh, conspiracy mm -hmm. theories. And uh, you know, and why were um, the uh, jet fighters? Take, why did they take so long to be scrambled on that day as well? Why isn't somebody answered for that? And it's also, it's, well, I was going to say, it's strange that nobody really cares, particularly because you don't hear anything about it in the news. Um, if you do, it's uh, to assign those people a kind of crazy status. But that goes back to, you know, nobody is really affected personally. And and if somebody's affected personally, it's it's out of fear and wanting somebody to protect them, and they'll listen to anything. It, it has something to do with American society, too, though, really quick. I mean, I was in the Middle uh, East. Yeah, kind of that's what I was saying. I was in the Middle East on 9-11, and I've told you this numerous times and other people, that um, I had to tune into BBC or the DW, the German news, to get straight news because everything on American CNN was just constantly people crying and, and a bunch of incoherent, you know, I mean, from my own country where this disaster happened, nobody in any news office was giving straight news. It was all emotion, 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 emotion. And I just thought that was odd. That was the first thing I found odd about that day. Well, yeah, I think that, that American news media tends to be uh, emotional and, and it, it not it's sort of fact-like. And I, I do notice listening and watching the BBC occasionally that it, it's a little bit more uh, fact-heavy than, than our media, but although it's, it's not, it's far from perfect as well. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. People just, it, it is, our, our news media is often infotainment. It, it, there's a big problem with we, we the news media departments of uh, these conglomerates, these, they used to be, they didn't have to make a profit. They, they, the entertainment divisions of these different corporations made the profit, and they, they sort of underwrote the news media. They, they weren't required to turn a profit, but that changed about 20 years ago. And so they, because they have to make profits, they've cut way back on fact-checkers. They've cut way back on paying for independent investigative journalists. And uh, so they, they've just – they take stories when if they'll get – press releases from people within the government, whether it be from the White House or Congress or wherever, or from corporations, and they just go with that and don't do much of a real investigation of the story, so you get this kind of it's just press release sort of news, and it's very weak, and so we're, uh, yeah, that's a problem, that the, the way the news uh, uh, programs are now structured. Well, you know, if you investigate anything too closely, you end up in a tub in some motel in West Virginia on alleged suicide. <laughs> yeah, there possibly. There are the, those cases. And, uh, now, some of these, though, that I, I've, I've thought were suicides at first, or thought were 
murders at first. I, I later thought, well, they maybe are suicides, such as Gary Webb, who exposed the yeah. the um, connection between the CIA and the crack cocaine epidemic in this country. And, and he died somewhat mysteriously, but after investigating it, or, or, or Nick Scow, a guy investigator, read, read his book, and I interviewed him. He said it, it, it looked pretty solid that it was a suicide, and there it was this whole history of mental, you know, emotional problems with this guy. But at the same time, you're like, hmm, it is kind of funny that, that a lot of people who are uh, saying things that are not convenient for the CIA or, or for other powers that be uh, end up committing suicide. So. Yeah, I, I was wondering about Gary Webb. What what convinced you that? Uh, well, you said it was a history of mental problems, and well, yeah, yeah. You know, Nick Scow did a pretty thorough job of it. He's a, a writer for OC Weekly, and he did this book on on um, Gary Webb, and he was saying that uh, you know there were certainly people that wanted to shut him up, but uh, he it also made a lot of sense that he would have committed suicide. He, there was a suicide note that seemed legit. And he uh, had his marriage fell apart. His relationship with his other girlfriend that he had fell apart. He lost his job. He lost his career. Everything. I mean, you could say he was driven to suicide yeah. by uh, a lot of different people. The, the media, if nobody else, uh, the the East Coast media got real envious of the San Jose Mercury News for uh, coming out with that story, which for the most part was, you know, ninety five percent accurate. Uh, and they they were real envious of it, and these damn upstarts on the West Coast, San, San Jose Mercury News, who the hell are they? And so they set about to debunk Gary Webb's story, and they did some really horrendous things from a journalistic viewpoint of, of just attacking him. And his editors didn't back him. They, they backed down and, and, and just uh, ended up... Firing uh, him. Yeah, well, he didn't quit fired. They demoted and gave him a really crappy job. Yeah. I mean, he was one of the top writers, and they gave him some little covering city council meetings, and it, it was it was it was really disgusting. And his career was just destroyed. I mean, so you could see how he was driven to suicide. So, I mean, not as bad as actually killing someone, but it's still pretty unethical. Yeah, well, it it makes you wonder less why. Uh well, he has his own reasons, which he stated very clearly, but that Greg Palace stays in England and does his reporting for the BBC and other news organizations from there. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Uh, who were you talking about? I said it, it. you would wonder about Greg Palace, but then he's explained why he stays in, in the U.K. and does his reporting from there. Uh, I just, I, I start, I've gotten about halfway through Armed Madhouse, but it was so depressing I had to stop reading. It was actually making me feel depressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't read that one. I've, I've read his earlier book, uh, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Yeah, I read that too. That one I got all the way through. Yeah, and that that book has a lot of good information about the the stealing of elections in this country, and uh, I recommend that. So, you know what's uh, funny is... I, go ahead. I, go ahead, Walter. I mean, uh, Robert. <laughs> Sorry. I, I think, you know, he feels... I think he feels pretty comfortable working in... in England on this stuff, but uh, he seems to not have any fear for his well-being, which is good. Well, he doesn't admit it in public. The f yeah, what I was going to say is a, a funny thing with Walter and I. We were in, uh, we were out in the Imperial Valley near the Salton Sea there, <laughs> working on uh, 
he was helping me while I was uh, trying to get information for the Weird California book. We were there on the night of the 2004 election. Remember this, Walter? And we were we were watching all the returns. Yep. All the returns come in, and they kept sweeping across the country, time zone by time zone, mm-hmm. state by state. And they had gotten all the way to Hawaii, and Ohio had not reported in yet. Yeah. Yeah, real funny how Ohio reported kind of late. It's like, well, we have to shuffle some things around here. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is that a lot of people forget this. I remember early in the day, I'm paying attention to the news, because, yes, it's real important. It's going to affect the next four years of the country. Uh, early in the day, they said, you know, exit polls, John Kerry wins Pennsylvania. So you're going, okay. He needs to win three of the big swing states. He's got one of them there. Or he needs to win two of the three big swing states. He's got one of them there. The exit polls come out of Florida. It's saying that Kerry's winning in Florida. And so I'm thinking to myself, oh, well, it looks like Kerry's going to win the election. It doesn't matter if he loses Ohio. But, you know, lo and behold, the... Florida sort of flips again, you know, and, and it's, it's like, so it's not just Ohio, even as people don't realize, there's about, actually about seven or eight swing states that day that the exit polls went the opposite of what the quote-unquote official uh, count went, and uh, I, the, the book I would most recommend on that is uh, Mark Crispin Miller's Fooled Again, and it's it's got 50, 50 to 60 pages of footnotes in there. Uh, you know, he's not just pulling this stuff out of his ass. You know, he's getting it from all these uh, mainstream news sources indicating that there was some funny business going on. And it's, a, yeah, it's not to say, whoa, we'd be so... Uh, uh, John Kerry would be such a great president. That's not the point. Even if you think Kerry would be a worse president than Bush, it's like we're supposed to be living in a democracy. Right. And, uh, you know... Uh, I don't know that we actually do anymore. Did he explain in the book why he thought Kerry just rolled over? Well, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, he met with John Kerry, I think, in 2005, after he had written the book. And, and he said to John Kerry, he gave John Kerry a copy of the book, Mark Crispin Miller did, and said, uh, you know, you were robbed. And uh, John Kerry said, yeah. I know, and uh, this is Miller saying this is a private conversation they had, and he was on Amy Goodman's Democracy Now! show, like I think the next day or a couple days later, Uh and he came out with this. He says, Kerry admits he feels that the election was stolen, and uh, the next day, John Kerry's office puts out this release saying, oh, John Kerry never said that, and so... Mark Christopher Miller swears up and down that Kerry did say this. So, I mean, it's his word against Kerry's. But the thing is, is that he then, Miller goes into this explanation how he thinks that Kerry just is is in denial. He just, he just cannot accept this fact. It's like this psychological thing that, that our elections are rigged in this country. And uh, it's just like it was just too much for him to accept. I mean, even though it, it means that he had the uh, election stolen from him, and, and he's not going to fight to have it back because he just can't go down that rabbit hole. And uh, he, he goes into quite some length. I mean, it's just Miller's speculation on, on the psyche of, of John Kerry, but it's, it's backed up by some, some interesting evidence. And... Um, uh, and also on the night of the election, and this is this is uh, documented, is that that John Edwards said, "Look, we shouldn't concede. We should fight this out. There's some really funny things going on here." And John Kerry said to him, 
no, I can't do that. It's going to be a sour grapes thing. I'm going to look like a sore loser, and it'll kind of you know, ruin my political career and all of this. And he's sort of like just thinking about himself and not thinking about the country. Right, and, exactly. And he was thinking, well, I probably can't win this battle, and I might want to run for president again or at least run for Senate again, and I don't want to look like some conspiracy theorist, so I'll just let it let it lie. I'd, I'd like to fight and, and actually become president, but I'd probably lose that battle in the courts and everything anyway, so, you know, there's no, there's more, the upside is kind of weak. So that, that was his explanation of that, and um, I don't know. It's, it's, so it's, basically he's a, he lost the election, and after that he was a big, fat pussy. Well, he's been a big fat pussy for a while, a politician. again to Nick Scow, who wrote the book about Gary Webb, uh -huh. because if you remember, uh, John Kerry in the 1980s, before he became a big pussy, <laughs> <laughs> was, was one of the pe main people screaming about this whole problem of what the CIA was doing in Central America, right, and right. how that they were responsible for looking the other way as drugs were coming into this country, and that, that he was also pointing out all the crimes that the Contras were committing and that, that you know, this whole thing that Reagan was so obsessed with was a really bad thing. And these guys were basically terrorists that we were supporting there in, in Nicaragua. So he was going on and on about that and having hearings and all kinds of things. I mean, he was really kicking ass on this issue. And something happened. Somebody just knocked him down a peg and they, they somehow pulled something out from under him where he couldn't go any further with this investigation. People, other people in the Senate wouldn't back him anymore, even though the facts have now all come out. The CIA has, has admitted that they were involved with guys who were drug runners. All of this stuff, he's, he's, been, he's been sort of corroborated. They made Kerry look like a kook. And, and he just, since that point, this was in the 80s, right. he just really backed down. And, you know, this was the guy that was doing that, that threw his medals and said that the, you know, the Vietnam War was a lie. The guy that was, you know, speaking truth to power, they, they just, they, they, they scared the crap out of him. And then he just became this sort of mild-mannered politician and, uh, you know, still pretty good on some issues but not willing to fight really hard for certain things because he, when it comes down to it, and that, that's, that's what happened. That's my, my view of it, and I'm you know, not the only one. What about the possibility of uh, you know, the, the unspoken part of whoever got to him? You, know, you never know the things that didn't come to surface. You never know, you know what was said in the private conversation that you know backs these guys down uh, my, my view is a lot more cynical I think than anybody's here I think they're all politicians and they're all just to me two sides of the same coin and I feel that in any election uh, both sides are rigged to where it, it, either side wins however that happens they're gonna serve the same master you're saying that, that uh, both sides are bad. It doesn't matter too much who wins the election, that they kind of, they kind of uh, have a gentleman's agreement behind the scenes. Oh, we're all skull and bones. Uh, uh, you're going to win this one. Maybe I'll win the next one. Is that what you're um, kind of saying? Not, not quite as conspiratorial. I, I think what it is is a, um, uh, they're, they're all tainted by the system um, th that they're in, and they're all tainted by... Um, you know the the influences that quite frankly i mean let's admit it you know control politics and uh, legislation in this country and that i'm speaking of money and um you know they they're all going to bow they all bow to the same god ultimately 
Um, so in effect, it is kind of that, yes. Am I saying that it's a sinister actual body that's somewhere that in the shadows says yay and nay, you win this one, I'll win the next one? No, no, I, I, I don't think it's so much that as I think it's just that they all bow to the same God and they're all tainted. That Something happens to these guys. When yeah, they... the system is pretty rotten. I, I will agree with you on that. However, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Their system, not the formal system, is what I'm talking about. Just their, it, the, the system that has been created, of the system of politics, not the formal system. Not the like the constitutional system. Absolutely, is what I'm saying. Right, right. It's just the politics of it, the money. We've just got so much of this money in there, and so you know, it's all the corporate money, and it's just uh, the big, huge, uh, megalithic corporations have so much power, and they're somewhat not distinguishable from the government anymore. A good system's being abused by greedy, greedy people. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I tend to think, well, some things are not quite as bad as others. And yeah, I mean, I, I do always go back to the thing of, of judicial appointments. And you, and you have to agree that, I mean, some of these guys that, that uh, George W. Bush has appointed are, are really extreme and, and just really have no respect for the, the Constitution. And, and uh, the um, if you look at the people, the two people that Clinton put on the Supreme Court, there, there's quite a bit of difference in, in that they have a little more respect for the Bill of Rights than, uh, I mean, I mean, these two last two guys, Roberts and, and, and Alito, really scared the crap out of me. Yeah, uh, if uh, the Republicans, or whoever is, uh, can't, couldn't get Bush in, you know, next time because of the uh, two terms, uh, gets the next person in, just, it's going to keep chipping away at that. And they don't do it because they're rubbing their hands together and saying, woo-hoo-ha-ha-ha, we're so evil. It's, uh, I think the uh, motivation is um, uh, centralization of power and the, the, uh, their friends who put them in office and who are buddies with them at the golf club or whatever, just like we sit around and do this and we started a magazine together, we're going to help each other out. The, the, the problem, you know, the difference is what we do doesn't affect a great portion of the population. So, well, you know, there's the thing. I, I think, you know, the Democratic and the Republican parties, they're both corporatist parties, and they're both they're both doing the bidding of the big-time elitist investor class. You know, that that's going on. But, but the Bush crowd, the current Bush crowd, these guys are also, they've got this other weird ideology right. in addition to this ideology of greed that both parties have. They've got this thing, these neocon guys who are just really a bunch of kooks, who really have an idea for creating this empire through military yeah, might. American and, worldwide and these empire. guys are frightening. And also we have the, the Christian fundamentalist kooks that are also, and those are the two main driving forces in that party now on top of the, the corporatist greed aspect. And so it's at that is something I think we should all be really concerned about. Well, on the same level, we should be concerned about the uh, the globalist, um, you know, socialist to the extreme uh, ideology that's on the other side. Uh, you know, um, the, the, the other end of the spectrum is, in my opinion, just as much something to be frightened about as the very valid things you pointed out. What it means is, like, the magazine you guys started, what about everybody in the middle out there that's not a nut to either extreme, you know? Well, yeah, I think those globalist elements, though, those are in both parties. I mean, but... It, it, in different ways, yeah, yeah, for different reasons. 
And, and I think, I mean, but the, the, the neocons and the, the Christian fundamentalists have really hitched themselves to the Republican Party, though. It's, yeah. uh, I think that True. is there. That is one thing that's worse about that party. And, and, I, and it, the globalist element, I think, is in both parties. Just uh, my take on it. And I, I don't know. I, it's uh, we, we need something new and something different, and, and uh, it's not very likely going to happen, barring some sort of catastrophe. And uh, uh, hoping nothing really horrible happens. But uh, sometimes that's the only way things change. Yeah, I, actually, Robert and I earlier when we were talking about you know eras and uh, coming cataclysms or whatever, and, and how much stock we take in those what people are talking about and um, well well for instance this 2012 thing that's so hot on the on coast to coast and among, amongst a bunch of writers i think you've had a, a 2012 writer on your show right uh, oh yeah uh well, I, um, Daniel Pinchbeck is going to be on the show next week. I mean, he's done the yeah. show before, but we haven't talked about his 2012 book. Uh, next week, he's going to be on to talk about 2012, the return of Quetzalcoatl. And uh, I, yeah, he's he's uh, he was very very skeptical of all this stuff. He was one of these East Coast New York journalists who was I. I just uh, anything sort of mystical he didn't take too seriously or anything uh, like of that nature but he started listening to Terrence McKenna and, and doing uh -oh. uh, psychedelic drugs and uh -oh. got, um, went going to Africa and the Amazon to to do work with these shamans and he started uh, taking this kind of stuff more seriously as his life kind of radically shifted and he got interested in that this whole the Mayan prophecy thing but also pointed to other things that seem to shore it up yeah yeah and he, he's uh and of course terence mckenna was talking about this many years back and uh, he talked about mckenna's time wave zero and all of that and uh i, I don't know it, it's it, if you just look at trends it, it, it's not that weird to say that in five years there's going to be some kind of weird radical shift I mean, if you look at just the way, I mean, Robert Anton Wilson used to talk about this, and, and what was he, didn't he call it the jumping Jesus phenomenon? <laughs> it was about yeah. how, how knowledge doubles every so often, and right. that rate of doubling has increased It's accelerated, dramatically. yeah. Right. So, in other words, from the time of Jesus, for knowledge to have doubled from that point, it took like a thousand years. Yeah. And then the next time it doubled, it took only like 300 years. And the yeah. next time it took only 100. And the next time. Yeah, now it's every couple right. of, every few months. Right. And so that by 2012, we're going to get to this point where the totality of human knowledge is going to be doubling every day. In, uh, um, if that is the case, you can just imagine that we will be in a sort of radically transformed situation. So, so um, Pinchbeck goes into that a little bit, and he talks also about just weird trends in consciousness and uh, dreaming and lucid dreaming and out-of-body experiences. And, and he talks about when he did these different psychedelic drugs, that those kinds of things, even though you know the drug had worn off, he would start noticing those things happening more in his life. It was like he'd been opened up mystically so then he goes in and talks about a lot of mystical tradition he talks about rudolf steiner and uh -huh. uh, yeah so it's uh, fascinating stuff it's cali yuga time it's cali <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I mentioned I mentioned that when Robert so, yeah, and I were talking. Is Kali Yuga is scheduled to, to come to an end, right? Isn't that? Yeah, sometime in the early 21st century, uh, people have been talking about it for a while. It's supposed to have started, um, like, you know, June 5th, 1785 or something. But just like this time wave zero thing and the, the Mayan prophecy, it's supposed to speed up as it happens. It's, like, supposed to be pinging back and forth and getting to the point where it just all falls apart and we all start over again and, and start in the, uh, first, the first Kalpa, whatever that is. I can't remember what it is. Uh, where everything is is kind of um, everything is nice for thousands and thousands of years, and the forces of good um, uh, hold sway, and then for the next like three thousand years or something, for good and evil are in balance, and then after that, evil takes over, and then it, uh, at the end, it blows up and starts all over again. So it, yeah, on the one hand, you're going well. That's just probably wishful thinking on everybody's part. Everybody wants to have this coming Wacky golden age. <laughs> Yeah, but we've got this. Uh, you keep realizing, especially people like Pinchbeck and McKenna and things like that, that just because our way of looking at things has basically dominated the earth politically, technologically, it doesn't mean it's the most valid way of looking at things in all aspects. Uh, yeah, right. And he talks about uh, the latest Maybe one of them. thinking in, in you know, quantum physics and... Uh, consciousness and how that, that we really are operating under weird assumptions that we think we know how things work, like we think we understand mind and consciousness and that we understand time. We don't understand those things at all. No, and it's it's funny when uh, there's two views about the psychedelic thing when you start doing them, experiencing that, or doing, you know, consciousness changing, raising, whatever you want to call it, kind of uh, activities, you start to realize that there is, you know, that, that the way we the way we perceive, like you said, time and the flow of time and causality and you know how people interact with each other and how this world is being run is not really exactly the best way to do it and not really what there is and because what there is is not describable actually yet with our language the way things are a r e um, in quotes in uh, capital letters. Yeah, and if you've ever had like a weird string of, of synchronicities or a telepathic experience that just, y you know, you just start thinking, okay, there's got to be a different way to explain how, how reality is put together. And now, Greg, you you worked with a mystical group for a while, uh, doing some uh, sort of a cultish group. I don't know. Do you want to talk about that a little? Like what? Yeah. Well, I've already I've already written about it on the site. I figured I might as well just come clean and talk about it because then people just think I'm saying weird stuff because I think it's cool. Yeah, I was uh, involved with the Builders of the Aditum, which was kind of like um, it was a Western mystery school occult uh, practice. Um, but they they I didn't want to go with the OTO type people because they kind of one and they had a they had a, the Alistair Crowley group because one they had kind of a bad reputation not not through Crowley's actually it is through his fault but it's not his fault that wacky people join it I just saw too many egos in something that was supposed to get rid of your ego you know with the builders of the Adidum they're basically a study group and they looked at uh, reality causality and most importantly um, your personal place in this reality and how things happen and how you can make that change by looking at how the world works in, in maybe a slightly different way based on um, 
a lot of different traditions, including Western occult tradition, Eastern traditions, etc. And not in a way where they push it on you or, you know, they'd hound you or ask you for tons of money or anything. So that attracted me. It seemed like, you know, their message was what was most important, not your money or your membership in their group or whatever. And, uh, yeah, what I found out from this is basically a way to make yourself feel better in uh, the reality that, that you create and that have others created for you and how to you know make your way through that. It's kind of like self-therapy, really. Yeah, yeah, that's the way I, I sort of, uh, when you've de- you have described it to me in the past and other people I've known have been involved in groups like that, it's a way, it's a sort of self-improvement thing and sort of a way to come into better touch with your your mind, your your conscious, your subconscious, your superconscious, or whatever other terms you want to put on those. Yeah, they're all loaded terms here. Terminology that goes along with that as well. So it's, uh, you know. Speaking of stuff like that, uh, have either of you ever seen the movie called Holy Mountain? No. Haven't even heard of it. What's that? Uh, It's a really excellent, I think, uh, mystical sort of uh, alchemical movie. This director, Jodorowsky, I think is his name, how you pronounce it, he made some kind of surreal movies back in the 70s, I think, and 80s, and this was one of his movies, Holy Mountain, and it's uh, got all this weird uh, uh, alchemy stuff in it, and symbolic, uh, mystical journey kind of things, but the visuals in the movie are, are really stunning in a kind of disturbing way in some scenes, but it's just a, it's a movie that definitely grabs your attention. Hmm. Is it out on DVD right now somewhere? It is. I, I got it from Netflix, and uh, it just, I don't know that you'd find it at Blockbuster or whatever the places are out there these <laughs> That's days. That's the last but, place uh, you'd find it. Netflix, and so, I really found it to be a, a, an interesting flick. Sounds like something I got to see. I was just working today on the Disneyland book in the chapters on alchemy and hermeticism, and and so that's and when you said that, it just it pinged me. So I got to check this out. Yeah, I, I, Mark Pilkington keeps um, every time I see him, he gives me um, uh, soundtrack material from Jodorowsky movies, but I've never actually seen any of the films. How'd you find out about it? Somebody on your show told you, or? Uh, Rick Agnew. Uh, uh musician guy I know, uh, he and I were at a party, seriously, like 20 years ago. <laughs> Somebody, it, it, I don't know if they, I think it was just on TV. It was uh, on late night TV somewhere, oh. right? Uh, it was, I don't, not that many people that we knew had VHS. And maybe, maybe uh, anyway, whatever, it's not important. We were yeah. at some late night party, and uh, this movie was on, and we were saying, what the hell is this? It's so weird. And somebody said, it's called Holy Mountain. And uh, we kept talking about it for years. And then I ran into Rick, uh, I don't know, a few months ago. And he said, oh, I've got it on DVD. And then I said, well, it's on DVD. And he said, yeah, you got to check it out again. Because well, we'd only actually seen part of it at this party. It was at least 20 years ago, probably yeah. like 25 years ago. And uh, so I, then I just went and looked it up on Netflix and, and got it. Yeah, and it just... Uh, it, it's just one of those weird things. Like we just happened to be at this party this one night where there was some weird person that, that knew about that movie and either had it on TV or had a VHS of it or something like that. And, and uh, you know, I, I, that's how I came across funny things. Robert Anton Wilson, uh, just hanging out with some other musician guy back in like 
the early 1980s. And he's, have you ever heard of Robert Anton Wilson? And no. Oh, you should read some of his books. So, yeah, I, had to, I couldn't. I didn't read any of the stuff till '88, really late on. But um, actually, because uh, Robert actually um, made it possible for me to meet Wilson for the first time um, at that uh, conference in uh, Mill Valley. Oh yeah, the Anomalies Conference that I uh, helped uh, put on with Faustin Bray of Sound Photosynthesis. You know, that was a pretty fun event. I can't remember if it was that well attended. There might have been like a hundred people there or something. It was very, it was raining like mad that day too. Do you guys? Ever yeah, re- it was kind of a not not a real great turnout, but uh, yeah, but it there were some interesting speakers for sure. And I I rem- got to meet Bob Wilson. Yeah, I remember. I just um, since I don't know. I guess because I knew you, I got some way of just to sneak backstage, and all the speakers were sitting around a table just introducing themselves and yakking. Kind of having a like a roundtable discussion, and I just sat down with them, and I introduced myself, and they you know nobody knew who the hell, who the hell I was, but they accepted me, and I got to talk, and everybody else did, and I, I was still kind of wondering, you know, I don't think I should be here, but I'm so lucky that I am. Then right afterwards, um, I told Wilson I was writing an article for the uh, L.A. Weekly, which of course I wasn't, but I was planning to, and he sat down and talked with me for like I don't know half an hour or so, and he was really cool about it. Then after that. Um, I actually got got to go visit him at his home a few times um, in the about you know in the in the space of about six or eight years before he died um, this this last um, January. Yeah, he uh, Robert Anton Wilson put a lot of people on on weird uh, journeys by his uh, strange urgings in his book. Uh, Walter, do you have uh, any Robert Anton Wilson stories? I was going to ask you guys how much of his fiction you had read because I read in the early '80s the Sigamundo Celine novels. Are you familiar with those? Did he write those? Yeah, I believe he did. Robert Anton Wilson. The only one I know about uh, of the um, his fiction is Illuminatus trilogy, and uh, I guess there's a few other scattered little ones, but those are the big ones. I could be wrong. I'll go look it up. But well, yeah, Greg and I uh, have to admit we haven't read much of his fiction. We got inspired mostly from his nonfiction. And, uh, I don't know. Have you, in the meantime, caught up on any on much of his fiction, Greg? No, I still haven't, and I have a copy. Of, go ahead. I have a copy of. Um, of uh, Illuminatus, the first uh, of the trilogy. There's Illuminatus, and I can't remember the second one, and the third one's Schrodinger's Cat, I think. So, so, so Walter, you brought up that book. You were going to make a point about... Oh, he's looking it up right now. He's looking it up online just to see if... Because uh, I, I never heard that title related yeah, to... Name Wilson. the title again? The character is named Sigamundo Celine. Sigamundo Celine. He's trying to find the um, Illuminatus Chronicle. Oh well, that it, it's a um, it's, it's a it's a character. Sigamundo Selene is the ancestor of Hagbard Selene, which is one of the main characters in the Illuminatus uh, oh, okay. books. Yeah. Okay. That's so yeah, he he did, he had read Wilson way back when, before okay. I even knew who the hell he was. <laughs> I, I I only found out because I was in a you know, I was in a horrible, terrible, depressive state, and I just happened to find something that he'd written. In a magazine, like in a zine from Maryland, a, 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 a paranormal Fortean magazine, and that's how I found out about him. It just—I it, just happened on it at a time in my life where I, I guess I needed to. 
Well, I think you and I happened on him about the same time. Yeah. You know, it was years before we met each other, but it, I think our sort of track of, of Wilson uh, indoctrination <laughs> it took, a, the, you know, sort of similar... Uh, yeah. Uh, it was kind of went on a similar chronological uh, path. Well, if I had to be indoctrinated in any philosophy, the philosophy of trust your own reason and doubt everything, I think is... A pretty good one. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I like, you know, we were talking about all these conspiracy theories, and, and Robert Anton Wilson talked a lot about conspiracy theories, but he always came back to this place of where don't fall prey to, to the paranoia and just understand that all of these people behind the scenes with the power, they have... They don't trust each other, so they're, they're, it's not very likely that they're all going to work together on one big grand conspiracy that's going to enslave all of us because they're going to fight it out. Just and I, I think Greg, you and I have talked about this the the, the whole model of, of organized crime of the mafia. Yeah. You just kind of watch that sort of thing, and you see how they at certain points knock each other off, and it's just uh, uh, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't beware of those types of, of secret organizations, but to sort of understand that the the one big grand conspiracy is not only not real likely, it, it, it sort of is the definition of paranoia. Yeah, the, the, well, the conspiracy um, with a capital C is in people's own minds. It's the greed and the power lust and all that. That's you know that's what keeps it going. And I remember one person actually quoted by Wilson said, um, I can't remember who it was. I think it was an arms dealer or something. Maybe been, maybe it was Khashoggi or something. Uh, said uh, to a reporter or somebody who was doing a story on him or he was talking to said, if you want to know how the world works, watch The Godfather or read the book. That's how it works. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and then I, I like Wilson's other idea of just. Start your own conspiracy, but right. that's you know positive and, and light filled and fun and sexy and you know and, uh, and not that's about having power over other people in a toxic way, but in a way of, of empowering empowering yourself and, and thereby empowering others to, to do uh, wonderful things in the world. I mean, it's yeah, uh, in it's spite not of quite that simple, but it, it's. Uh, you know, to just look at it that way is certainly a better way to, to to operate in the world, I think. At least you'd be happier. Yeah, he calls it the winner script, which really stuck with me. The what? The winner script. The winner <laughs> script, you know, I, I'm in control of my destiny. I can do what I want. Me and my friends are are the uh, ultimate conspiracy, etc. like that. Instead of somebody else controls my life, there's nothing I can do about it, we're all going to die, or we're all being watched every second, and there's nothing we can do about it, etc. Because a lot of that, that turns into its own culture. The kind of people that, uh, a lot of people that will listen to, uh, like a Jeff Rents show or something like that, um, and this is how the media runs too, is basically on fear and paranoia. To, to varying degrees, because I don't know why, but a lot of people are addicted to fear and paranoia. I I don't understand that. It makes you feel bad and probably gives you cancer, etc. But that's how a lot of people run their lives and think it, it, to some degree, and uh, that that's too bad. 
that that's why the uh, you know we've been hearing rumors of uh, a remake of uh, Fahrenheit 451 being the Bradbury book I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and it actually would be very timely right now if you know if when you read the book because that very element is a major part of the society in that book and how you know the people in control keep control is you know the media comes on and it talks about the war and and you know in that particular book it's made up. You know, as Montag learns, but um, it's it's very what you just said immediately makes me think of that. Well, that would be good and timely. Although, did either of you know that that uh, Ray Bradbury is a, a big George W. Bush supporter? Didn't know that. How'd you find Didn't that out? Then I read it somewhere recently, and uh, yeah, he, he's a, and um, uh, he he was really pissed off when Michael Moore came out with his movie and sort of co-opted the name although you know he had the right to do that but uh but i think he was more pissed off because it was an attack on on george bush who who bradbury is a fan of uh so i i found that interesting and uh because it seems that you know part of what bradbury was about was was or at least in that book it seemed that he was warning against uh control too much control by the state but right. he, he actually described it differently he said people got that wrong and he, it was really fascinating to hear his description of what he was really trying to do with that book and i'm sorry i don't have it with me but i mean you could probably google it but uh it, it, it's fascinating i would like to see a remake of uh the movie brazil i think that fits our time yeah, well, I don't. Th- it doesn't have to be remade. It's still good the way it is, as long as it's the director's cut. Because um, uh, there's a there's a happy ending that is uh, ambiguous. I think in the director's cut because he's in a he's in a uh, catatonic kind of mind controlled state. Um, but in the uh, the studio version, that actually happens. He like runs away with that what's her name that girl that he's in love with, and they live out in the country somewhere by themselves. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not really a big fan of remakes, anyway. But I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't. I just don't understand why people don't talk about that movie more now because it has so much bearing on our situation. Yeah, I got to watch it. Weird, again. sort of contrived war on terror and this total information awareness program. That's you know, in that movie, they, they're 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 keeping tabs on everybody and every uh, just and, and the the secret police just come into your house in the middle of the night and there's all these things that the the Patriot Act and the Military Commissions Act seem to be. Yeah. Towards and people like John Poindexter wanting to have their total information awareness program and this whole obsession with the terrorists, 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 yeah. and, and you know, and yet we, we'll uh, commit acts of terror ourselves in order to stop terrorism, yeah. is, which just seems sort of ludicrous. But that, that's the, the world we live in, which was for, foreshadowed in that movie. Yeah, but most people in America would rather watch, you know, Saw, Hostel, and Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, because because the other the uh, those those movies we got to take a break here. But those movies that we were just talking about um, are a little bit more on that um, Wilson thing. It's like let's see what's going on, let's think about it, let's go forward with that, but realize that we you know we're on to you and. Uh, we, the world doesn't have to be that way. Ultimately, if we, at least if we keep talking about it, thinking about it, until all of us are thrown in prison for doing that, um, which I hope doesn't happen. Uh, Robert, can you stay on for another hour? Okay, just I'll just hang on the line. Okay, and then the next segment we'll talk about uh, the UFO stuff and the 
Dream World and etc. All the other stuff that we're interested in. I mean, because it's it, it's funny. It just branches off. You see how much it's all connected. We're here with Robert Larson, host of uh, Out the Rabbit Hole, which is on KUCI Irvine Thursdays from four to five p.m. Now he just got his time changed, but he's still on. Thank God. And uh, we'll be back here in a couple minutes. Meanwhile, here's um, something I really like called The Left Arm of Buddha by Les Baxter. We're back here with Robert Larson, co-founder of The Excluded Middle and also host of Out the Rabbit Hole on KUCI down in uh, Orange County there on Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. Uh, probably in about uh, 20 minutes here, we'll open up the phone lines. You can call in, ask Robert questions. Usually I find that if I let people call in and before we're finished talking about what we want to talk about, we get off on a tangent. So not n- as if we weren't doing that before, right? Uh, <laughs> I remember the first issue of um, Excluded Middle. You wrote a, not really an editorial, but now I can't remember. What was the article you wrote in the first issue? I I just wrote a little thing about how we were kind of looking at UFOs, uh, something about UFOs and psychedelics or, or the absurdity of the mind or something like that. Yeah, that's it. UFOs and other absurdities or something like that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and uh, but uh, it just how that we were taking this sort of excluded middle stance on, on the whole subject, and that not just UFOs, but consciousness and, and psychedelics, and we were interested in what people like Keith Thompson had to say. <laughs> that, uh, that was uh, that was another person inspired us. Although he only wrote the one book having anything to do with UFOs, it was really interesting, and in that it uh, brought shamanism and, and uh, initiatory experiences sort of made connections between those types of things and UFOs, saying that UFO experiences operated in this symbolic way as a shamanic initiation. Well, also in a... sorely in need of something like that. Yeah. Also in an evolve, evolving system of myth, not meaning myth like not true, but the way humans think about things affect how that thing is and how they see it and how they may not realize it, which was the, which was the same thing that uh, Wilson and other people we admire were doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that uh, was, uh, I, I don't remember, I haven't looked so at, so long at that when I wrote that issue. That was uh, like 15 years ago. Yeah, it's kind of frightening, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is how, how time has just... Uh, gone by the time that weird mystery we still don't understand <laughs> i just wanted to do the magazine and you and peter were also gung-ho for it and you know we all put our money into it then after a while both of you had other things that you needed to do and for some reason i just wanted to stick with it so i did i what i realized after a while that anybody does when they're doing whatever thing they're doing is that you're continually learning and educating yourself it was like putting myself through school again i mean i'm still doing it but i realized that i was doing that 
really early on with the magazine, and you and Peter were like the first people doing the teaching, and then we went out and started fi- finding other people who were doing it, doing it too. It allowed us to talk to people that we never, I think, we never would have been allowed to talk to. Yeah, it's funny how if you have some vehicle, whatever it is, it's, 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 whether it's a magazine or a radio show or a TV show or, or, or you're just writing, you know, as a freelance writer, you, you know, people will talk to you. People that otherwise wouldn't, and, and it's just this, uh, if you're just a fan of these people, it's great. To, wow, I, I get to talk to this person now. This person's going to spend an hour talking with me, and that, that's, that's why I guess, you know, like you've said, why we do those sorts of things. And, um, Probably something I took away from Wilson and from that uh, BOTA Builders of the Adidas uh, Occult Group is just uh, you know make it happen. Don't complain about it or sit around or wish or whatever. Just go out and you know if you want to do something, figure out how to do it, and it, it kind of works itself out if you put it, put energy into it. The the thing you were saying about time and all that reminded me of talking with Dean Radin, which I keep bringing up because. After sitting with, you know, you talk about for an hour, he sat with me for five hours, (laughs) continually explaining to me in as many ways as possible in in the horrible, crude thing that we have as language, what he was trying to get across about, um, mainly about time and causality and how that time is a construct that we've made up and that causality does not work the way we think it does. It just works on our level, on our, our macro level. When you get to another level, it doesn't work like that any, anymore. Everything exists always. There, there's no there's no time barrier. It's just all there. Yeah, there's just only nowness, kind of, or something like that. But yeah, uh, yeah, language. We're getting trapped. Talks about that in the 2012 book. Yeah, he mentions Dean Radin, and and I hadn't thought about Dean Radin in a while. And then I was like, okay, well, yeah, this guy has something to say. It, it, it's funny. Uh, you talk about evolution of thought with doing these projects, and and. I, yeah, feel that as well. And something you and I were talking about today before the show, I brought up the whole issue of crop circles because I thought, because that, again, was in the 2012 book I'm reading now, and I said, well, you know, he mentions these cases that are really solid, and it looks like there's really something going on there that it can't possibly be a man-made thing and then and then you're saying well this guy i know i don't know if we want to mention his name he says oh no they're all man-made and i can i can prove that and so i've gone back and forth on that subject for a while i I kind of thought yeah it's probably people could just do those and that's what it is and then later i see something or somebody comes up with some new information i say wait 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 maybe it is something paranormal something we can't explain conventionally and then later <laughs> i don't know now I, maybe it is just just something mundane and i, so I don't know if you, if you guys find the same thing happening where you, you go back and forth on these different subjects oh constantly because it be, it's because of that wilson thing you know that dictum uh, and he wrote it in my book uh, when he signed a book of mine uh, what was it new inquisition his only inscription in the book was it said greg doubt robert anton wilson and the thing is, you know, I can't completely buy into anything except my wishes and my dreams and, and, and I guess a moral code. But anything else I can't really buy into completely. And I'll listen to both sides. And that's why I like to hear somebody with the best who has worked on something the most and seems to be not too crazy. I'd like to hear some uh, a proponent of for and against actually involved in some sort of a live debate. 
Because then I could say, you know, what's the best evidence from it's all man-made angle and what's the best evidence from it's at least sometimes uh, something that we don't know causing them. And I've heard pretty good arguments from both sides. And since it was Mark Pilkington, actually, who, who works uh, with 40 in Times and does a really great zine called Strange Attractor, I've become, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced of anything. But, you know, I tend to be on the side of, I think probably a lot, great proportion of them, um, people want them to be mystical, but I think they're man-made. But there's a, a sizable minority where there's some strange stuff going on there. Like, you know, obviously heat has been applied to them. They haven't been trampled over. I don't know about the electromagnetic effects, etc. So effects on uh, crop yields and the, the, the length of the stems and all that. But to the point where it doesn't, you know, stomping on them with a board doesn't explain it. Maybe it's that Dyson guy when he was trying out his new innovative vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Who? Dyson, you know, the guy in the commercials that talks about... You know, I don't watch TV too much, so I haven't seen it. Oh, that's it. right. Oh, God, that's <laughs> I right. I think I know what you're talking about. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it maybe. Well, there's the whole issue of the cosmic giggle, and, and uh, we've talked about that before. And, and maybe it is human pranksters, but maybe it's it's it, there's this universal prankster that the universe just plays tricks on us and and it's not meant to be something that we'll figure out it's just supposed to be something that we'll laugh about or that we'll question everything and as soon as we start thinking we figured it out we'll yeah, have another it does something cosmic else. giggle and hasn't and he been around since the beginning who the trickster Yes, well, I think this trickster thing is 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 an element of us. I mean, it, we're that trickster too. It's part of our. It. Uh, I think whatever that element is, works through our perception and our minds and our energy to get whatever done it needs to get done. I, at least part of the time, with uh, crop circles. God, I, I had a great idea about what I was going to say about crop circles, and I've lost it now. The fact that we have to look through our filter at things makes it hard to get outside of that. It's it's really hard to pull yourself outside of the way you've been taught to look at things, the way you talk about them, and your mental tools to figure these things out. And I, I think that whatever that trickster or that phenomenon, be it UFO or whatever, it's counting on that. Oh, I know. I remember, uh, Robert and uh, Walter, I wrote a column in um, on UFO Mystic. It was called Crop Circle Makers or, or Fakers. No, I think that's what Nick wrote. But what I wrote in my column was that the funny thing that Mark had told me the guy that says they're all man-made, mm-hmm. he said that, you know, in all seriousness, uh, people, including him, had been in crop circles and had weird things happen to them while they were making them. Like they'd get in weird mental states, they'd see lights flying around while they were doing, <laughs> while they were making their crop circles. So what, what the hell's going on there? That is, that's, that's really funny. That's really a trickster, uh, yeah. cosmic uh, giggle thing. It, uh, yeah, it's sort of like, there maybe is some strange phenomenon that cre- creates these things, but when people think they're going to do it in a in a uh, mundane way, they're going to do it with just normal means that they're going to get sucked into that that whole trickster vibe just because oh you're going to play this game while well, we're going to play back with you. <laughs> it would be like while pulling off a UFO hoax, a real UFO flying up to you and helping you out, or watching you do what you're doing. Right. <laughs> if only. I mean, that, that one time I hoax a UFO, I wish something else had happened. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs>
Yeah, well, I mean, we've been driving through the desert, and, you know, I remember at least going to cookouts, and we are going, this is saucer country, <laughs> Where, you know, where's our sighting? And, of course, nothing happened that I noticed. Have you ever seen anything weird in the sky, like had that kind of a paranormal experience, Robert? You know, I, a couple of times I've seen something that I couldn't explain easily, but I don't know. I just might be that I don't know enough about aircraft or whatever. I just saw things that looked a little odd in the, in the, in the night sky, the way they were moving, but they, they could have been conventional aircraft or, or could have been, uh, I don't know, dirigibles of some sort, but they, they just were odd. Yeah, I have no way to, to prove they were anything Two. outrageous, but they just seemed a little funny. Yeah, I know that two things happened while we were together. One was at Burning Man. Remember those lights that were moving way off in the distance and at right angles? No, I don't remember that. Really? I thought you were standing there next to me when we did it. We were both running away from skyrockets because they thought that we were going to fall on us. Um, I remember that, but I don't remember seeing anything weird in okay. the sky. It's funny how the other, we, we selectively remember things. <laughs> yeah, and the other one, which is the only paranormal thing that really threw me, was uh, it was right before I was going to Vegas to talk to Dean Radin. I came to your house, and I was right. I, I knew I was going to get divorced, and I was very upset at the time. Uh, we were drinking beer, <clears throat> and you gave me this glass, and we, we, I went and you know we drank beer, and then I went to the to the kitchen to wash the glass out. And you were standing there when this happened. There was a popping noise, and the glass exploded in my hand. Right, I remember that. That that was pretty weird. Now, see, I, you're. You were between me and the glass, though, or something, so I didn't see, and, and I, I just assumed it slipped out of your hand and just broke, and, and, and you were like, no, I didn't drop it or anything. It just exploded in my hand, and, and uh, you know, it, 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 it was a weird event, but, I mean, if you think about everything going on, it was like you were in this sort of psychic turmoil, and, and that could have created some pretty intense energy that just somehow flew out of your hand and into that glass. Maybe so. I mean, I, I don't know what the theory is of energies and all that. And Raiden said the same thing. He goes, well, don't you see that's just the exact thing that should have happened in that situation? But, <laughs> but the funny thing was I heard an audible pop and felt it in my hand. And then you looked at my hand later. There were pieces of glass stuck to my hand, right? Yeah, it, and it then, was pretty weird. You were a little bit freaked out by it. I remember that. Yeah, and then you had to go all the way to the other end of the kitchen, like 15, 10 or 15 feet away, and p sweep up pieces of glass that had flown all the way over there. So what year was this, in about 99 or something like that? Yeah, I guess it was. It was like 99, 98 or 9. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, shit, that was, that was pretty bizarre. Well, I, there, there was something else weird that happened that involved both of us. Uh, I might have blocked it out. You, where was it? Was it at a, was it at one of our campouts or? No, no. Um, uh, I don't know. It'll come to me. Let's talk about something else. It'll it'll come to me. Oh, okay. But uh, well, yeah, UFOs. Well, I was thinking sort of about your uh, Project Beta, your book about Paul Benowitz and. The, uh, those orange lights, those things were pretty interesting, and that was kind of a strange energy phenomenon. I, uh, have you thought any more about that? Well, what I thought is that uh, somebody was making those and they knew what they were doing. Really? You, uh, you from what I... And, and they, they see it. 
Okay, but you never witnessed them. So you, uh, did Bill Moore witness them, right? Bill did, and um, Doty did, although if I say he witnessed something, far less people are going to even believe that. But uh, what, what, are their, what do they think about it? Do they think they were created by somebody? Um, Bill said he does not know. Doty said, I think some other department of the, uh, you know, like the DO, some other department of uh, uh, DOD was probably doing it. You're talking about the crop circles still? No, we're talking about uh, Paul Benowitz in his house. Oh, yeah. yeah. There were these, like, kind of, or- no, what color were they? I guess they were the kind of a light orange ball of light with, he said, sparkles in them would float up near the ceiling of his house, and if you went up and tried to touch them, they'd disappear. If it, you know, like stood on a chair and put your hand, went up to touch them, they would just they would he they would wink out. Um, not not he said it would be like turning off a you know high wattage light incandescent light you bulb. Know, they just kind of fade out very quickly. What's interesting about that is if it were some type of side effect to some type of electronic uh, surveillance kind of thing going on that they had discovered, and you know they knew that it would freak people out. So you know, it doesn't it sound like for some reason I get the gut feeling it doesn't sound like you're guessing. Oh, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> really? Oh, that's, hmm, what else can I convince him of? Okay, I didn't hear that part, Greg. What did you say? Uh, Walter said, well, maybe it was a side effect of uh, the surveillance, and they discovered how to do something that freaked people out, and they would just do it for the hell of it. <laughs> the the, the that, actual tricks. Uh, that's an interesting idea. Uh, I'm sure if, that, if they did discover something like that, they probably would use it. To that effect. I mean, because think about it. If you're getting into using anything that deals with electromagnetism and you're messing on that uh, that plane, you don't know what kind of um, results you're going to get. Um, I, you know, um, it 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 could very well be. I don't know for certain. <laughs> it's nine thirty right now, so I'll give out the number two one three two five two zero nine nine eight. If you want to call in and. Uh, Jump in the conversation and ask Robert something, uh, rant at us, tell us we're all disinformation agents, cover us with paranoia, whatever you want to do. 213-252-0998. Robert, actually, um, this has nothing to do with <coughs> with coughing, with the uh, paranormal, but I also thought it was interesting and amusing and cool that you used to be in a punk band. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Oh, from about 1977 to about 1984, in a band called Naughty Women, and uh, we were part of the, I don't know, the original L.A. scene and the original, well, the Orange County scene that people don't know about. There there was like a later Orange County scene that sort of centered around Huntington Beach, but we were in the early Orange County scene that centered around Fullerton that spawned to such bands as Social Distortion and Agent Orange and the Adolescents and the Detours. And we were uh, connected with all those guys, and it was a strange and interesting time. And it, in a certain sense, it was like so odd that we became part of that thing. It's like it just Orange County was so conservative in all ways then. And for the most part, and to, to be into a music scene that was so something that kind of questioned everything, or seemingly, and, and it just how does a person end up being part of that? And people are you always will ask me those kinds of things. You seem like a kind of odd character, or a person who's into a lot of odd things. How did that happen? Growing up in in Fullerton, you know, but I'm not sure. Yeah, well, Philip K. Dick lived in Fullerton for quite a while. 
He did, and, and that actually, I think somehow that energy affected me. I, did, I didn't know Philip K. Dick. I didn't know about him, but we lived in Fullerton at the same time. I, I was born in Fullerton in 1958 and lived there most of my life, and uh, it, was, it was definitely there in the 70s when he had his weird pink beam experience in Fullerton. And uh, yeah, I was going to Fullerton High School then, but I, I didn't even know about him. I hadn't been turned on to him yet, but I, I later became such a huge fan of his work, I somehow think whatever he was about, the energy that he was uh, bringing to Fullerton or was a part of somehow rippled over onto me on, on Houston Street in Fullerton and or Houston Avenue and, uh, and created the, the strange character that Robert Larson became. <laughs> yeah, because if you know Robert well enough or have the right connections, I think, will you still do this, take people on a tour of Philip K. Dick, uh, Philip K. Dick pilgrimage in Fullerton? Oh yeah! Any, anybody who who's a fan of Philip K. Dick is sort of like uh, then uh, kind of a friend of mine. So <laughs> I should be careful saying that. But no, you yeah, know, it's just like fellow seekers. It's like people who really understand Philip K. Dick and know that he he really did a lot to to get people thinking about reality and all these things we've been talking about here for the last hour and a half. Uh, yeah, anybody who's into that, I'm like, yeah, okay, you need to know that the house where, where he had the pink beam experience that inspired Ballas. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go by and see that. Yeah, it's an apartment complex, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, mundane-looking apartment complex. You wouldn't think anything about it. You wouldn't think that some guy who may <laughs> consider one of the most important American writers in the last century uh, uh, lived there and had this this strange mystical experience that, that, that actually inspired three or four of his books. Well, I mean, you've got you've got the intersections of uh, three major ley lines running through uh, Anaheim right there, so that doesn't surprise me that uh, the weird oh, okay. goings on well, in Fullerton. Uh, I, I live right, you know, right near Disneyland, and their fireworks are going off right now. So it's interesting. You oh. Say that. <laughs> oh, that's right. You can see them from your backyard. Up to 1972, our family lived in uh, Anaheim. And we used to look at the fireworks from Disneyland. We used to go down to the end of the, end of the block, and I would climb up the street sign, you know, when I was a kid and watch the fireworks from up there. So, so, so Walter, you're saying, that, I didn't know this about the ley lines, that, that they actually, there are some known ley lines that run through Anaheim? Uh, yeah, actually, um, I'm, I'm working on a book uh, kind of with Greg that it kind of was born here on this show about a year ago. Yeah, we were wondering fact. if some. It's like <laughs> we I wonder where you, you Club Thirty Three is. What we were wondering um, if Club what Club Thirty Three the name of the origin was, and everybody assumed it was Masonic um, because Disney was a Mason. But we pulled up on the computer to to look, and we discovered that Disneyland is on the thirty third latitude, which there's a lot of strange phenomena around the world. Well, it's a few. It's a few. Um, tenths of a degree above it but basically yeah, yeah but that's close enough i mean it's like horseshoes and hand grenades you know <laughs> do you know what club 33 is robert do i know what what is club 33 is uh, uh, no not offhand maybe i do once you mention it's it. it's the it's uh, now a place that it's really expensive to be a member um but it's on disneyland it's like a fine it's like a private club where there's oh, fine yeah. dining and alcohol and stuff like that and uh uh, but the, the but the thing about it was um, born out of this what we discovered. I I did this article and then I th said, hey Greg, let's write a book about it. 
And um, what I discovered is that, uh, what I learned. I'm sorry, I didn't discover it. What I learned was that there are th is the intersection of three major ley lines running through the Disney property, but not only through the Disney property, but directly beneath. The intersection was directly beneath where the carousel, the center of the carousel, set up until 1982. And this is what I go into in the book is to because I'd had a personal very, very strange experience there myself in 1980, and um, the book goes into that, but the book goes into the strange hermetical alchemical things at Disneyland that seem to be associated with this intersection of these ley lines right there. Wow. Well, I'm going to have to check out your book. Maybe you'd uh, want to be on Out the Rabbit Hole to discuss it at some point. Sure, absolutely. That, that's that's, that's <laughs> uh, a definite for you. Mention to you real quick, have you read the book uh, by D. Scott Appel, Philip K. Dick, The Dream Connection? I think Greg has mentioned that to I me. I mentioned or... it because Robert did, but I still haven't read it. But the, the reason I bring it up is because, well, Appel, he was a friend of Philip K. Dick's, and, and you know, we're talking about this in Disneyland, but Scott Appel was also a big fan of or is a big fan of Disneyland. He's got a kind of weird obsession about it, yeah. and he was having a lot of these dreams about Disneyland, and after uh, Philip K. Dick's death, he was having dreams about Phil, and and there, there, a lot of times the dreams involved Disneyland, and so you, you may want to check that out, and it absolutely. may uh, have some correspondence with what you're uh, doing there. The yeah. dream connection, I'll look that up. Yeah, that that could be a Thank whole other chapter. Uh, the the dream time and what what comes out of that. Um, you were talk we were talking about Dick and movies a little bit earlier and remakes. I guess uh, very soon here the uh, final director's cleaned up cut of uh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner is coming out. Yes. So oh. I'll, I'll go see that, and that of course is based on very loosely, in fact, on a Philip K. Dick novel. And I think it was one of the first movies that was made based on his books, and I, he was still alive when it came out. Yeah. I think it was the first uh, movie based on, yeah. on any of his books, and yeah, based on Do Android, Do Androids, A Dream of Electric Sheep, and he actually signed off on it and was was quite uh, pleased with the movie. Oh, you know, good. Although you know it wasn't, it, it, it took some liberties from the book, and he was fine with that. But it was right. he was he was really happy uh, with it. I could see why he would be uh, irritated, but I could also see very easily why he would like it. And uh, then just recently, uh, Sigrid, my girlfriend, picked up a copy of Scanner Darkly. You saw that, right, Robert? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I really liked that. Which was actually approved by the Philip Dick estate, I guess. You know, his, his uh, surviving children and, I guess, one of his wives or something like that. From the little I've read of Philip K. Dick, that movie actually was the closest to any of his books that I've been mm. able to see. And maybe it's because we've only gotten recently to the point where we could do something like that on film. One, through the, uh, through, you know, effects. But mostly because people have gotten to the point where they can start to grasp that kind of vision in a form of a movie. Right. The whole thing, we've been exposed to enough movies now that, that question reality. What is reality? And, and so that movie would be, like 20 years ago, would be maybe a little over the top for people. They, they couldn't deal with it because it's, it's got so much ambiguity in it. But I think now it's like, oh, we, we know about that. We're, we're more accepting of that kind of thing. And actually, everybody that I've heard comment on the movie, and including people connected to the Philip K. Dick estate and everything, and people that knew him are, are all saying that that book 
was not only the closest to any of his novels, but actually was pretty spot on. And and, and from what I uh, remember, I read the book quite a while ago. It seemed to follow it almost exact. Yeah, I mean, there were there were a lot of things that they cut out. But the essentials of the story and the main idea of the story and the questions about, well, you know, once again, um, authority and its power coupled with problems of how we think about things and how our reality can be screwed with and the dangers of that and not knowing what's going to happen. All these things turn up in that movie. And I think because of other movies, you know, The Matrix or what, or, and, you know, even all the way back to Blade Runner. And and weird things like Pulp Fiction, where you you know you see the same story four or five times. This had been done in foreign films, but who the hell watches foreign films in the United States? The filmmakers have been like gradually teaching us, bringing us along a little bit. You know, yeah. here's a little bit different way to look at things. We're lucky to be at a point where somebody could make that film that's so faithful to the book. And you have to see it probably at least four or five times. I, I only saw it in the theater, so I'm going to watch it again. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Uh, I, no, I turned a couple people onto it who who liked it, but were were just kind of disturbed by it. Or, or, or I think some people have problem with that whole uh, technique. What do they call it? Rotoscoping animation. Yeah. yeah, when you get out of the movie, you feel kind of disoriented for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it didn't bother me. I mean, I did feel yeah slightly disoriented, but I just. I tend to like that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's, it's uh, for five dollars yeah, or whatever. It's very entertaining to me. I, I like being sort of like tripped out a little. But yeah, it uh, was. Yeah, I think some people they they say it's the animation thing that bothers them, and I think it does maybe to an extent. But I think they're also it is a bit much for some people because it, it, the story is disorienting, and I think that. It's it's such a perfect marriage to have a disoriented story be told with this disorienting yeah. kind of animation, and uh, so kudos to uh, what's his name, Richard Linklater, yeah, for coming up with that. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think Fair maybe what you know, it's Go it's ahead. also it, uh, the the kind of uh, there's a lot of paranoia in that. There's a lot of like. It, Stuff that was going on with Philip K. Dick in the 1970s, and there were a lot of uh, he he was into some political things where he felt that he was being uh, spied on by the government, and, and it was kind of like now we're, we're really at that place. Maybe some of what he was feeling was paranoia, but now it's like, well, some of that's really going on now, and and the the war on drugs hadn't even been kind of put into place yet. Well, it actually kind of had, but they weren't calling it the war on drugs. But then that became a real big issue for as a government program of control. And and, uh, and now we have the war on terror yeah. is also out there. So we have these two things. And then in the movie, they sort of incorporated the war on terror a little right. bit into that. And drugs. So, uh, what were you going to say? And the war on drugs. Um, in fact, to the point where it's the the paranoia twist is it's a war on drugs, but it's a drug that's being pushed by the powers that be to screw with people and keep them in control. Right. But, but that kind of also ties in with the uh, what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. The, the CIA right. uh, sort of uh, looking the other way as crack cocaine was coming into this country, and uh, it. it Different kind of drug than than in that movie, but but like the in the, in the movie is very addicting drug, and it's sort of like, well, yeah, certain powers that be might want a drug like that out there in the population because it sort of, in a certain sense, makes people stupid. And, yeah, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like we 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 don't really want people doing DMT. That'll you 
give them funny ideas. We yeah. Have them doing crack cocaine that'll just make them kind of dumb. You know what scared me the other day? Somebody came up to me, one of my paragliding buddies, he said, have you ever heard of this stuff, uh, salive, salve, I said, salvia divinorum, and he said, yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah, I've been writing about it for a while. He goes, what do you know about that? And I said, how did you find out about that? And he goes, it was on NBC the other night. Oh, really? I said, it's going to be illegal in about a month. Isn't it already illegal? It isn't. It, I don't think it is because I see people selling it on Venice Beach still. Okay, so yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, it probably is legal, but yeah, it, it's... Boy, they just missed, uh, you know, it's just an oversight. Uh, they'll get down on that one pretty quick. And, right, exactly. Uh, yeah, but that, I've read some really strange encounters uh, people have had on that. Now, what is the, there's there's a, what is the drug that's synthesized from that? <laughs> Salvinorin, or salvinorum. It, right, now that's obviously more intense. And I've heard just really weird experiences people, experiences people have had. Yeah, that was just synthesized like in the 80s, I think. Uh, from the from the sage, the Mexican diviner sage uh, plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's so many different substances out there that can do weird things to your mind, and some of these things are really dangerous. People should never use any of these things without proper knowledge, uh -huh. if at all. Set and but uh, you know, uh, Pinchbeck in the book twenty twelve talks about using DMT, but he also talks about this other drug that's similar to DMT, uh, chemically, DPT, and he talks about some really bizarre things that happened to him when he used that. Like, he came down from the drug, from the trip, but then characters that he encountered that he thought were just hallucinations remained with him. He kept seeing them in his dreams and even in his waking life, and they were sort of like stalking him, and it was this, they were from some other time and some other place, and they were uh, somewhat sinister. And uh, it's uh, Those kinds of things fascinate me. It yeah. makes me feel like I would probably never do a drug like this, not because I don't think I, I'm uh, psychologically, emotionally uh, prepared to deal with stuff like that, but uh, I, I'm always interested to hear other people's uh, stories, uh, that people who have experimented with these kinds of things. Yeah, when you told me about that, I was thinking, you know, okay, there's there's a few explanations for this. Once again, this, like, you know, doubt, this Wilson thing or this, you know, multi-faceted way of looking at things so you don't get paranoid i guess and also because you open yourself up to more things you know maybe he did open up some kind of doorway in his own mind where you could see these things that were there in the, in the first place and maybe attracted them by his by his attention i mean that's what people say about ouija boards and doing certain ritual magic things or maybe he went nuts and it screwed up his mind and he thinks he's seeing these things and they're not really around but it's like a dreaming and a waking state kind of thing. But, the, you know, there's a whole other thing about dreams, too. Yeah, and then there's that sort of cliche that there's, there's a fine line between a schizophrenic and a shaman. But, yeah. uh, you know, there's probably some truth to that, yeah. as there are a lot of cliches. But, uh, you know, so it's probably a little of both. It's kind of that excluded middle. You know? Yeah, it's the shaman's that, job uh, to do that. He was experiencing. Well, he took on the shaman's job. It's the shaman's job to be Basically, um, at least in uh, as the way I understand it, it's their job to be a little bit crazy because he has access to that world that other people don't. He or she, they can learn through that, so they put up with his, uh, you know, what uh, we would call having a difficult friend that you have to kind of take care of because he's he's, he's the he fulfills that role in society. He's the family nut that brings rain when you need it. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, the uh, uh, Greg. You, uh, I think you said you want to talk a little more about UFOs. What? It, what? Uh, what what's? Uh, you're more up on that subject than I am. What, what's hot in that field these days? Well, the the recent thing that was real hot in the last few months was this. First, it was um, Serpo a couple of years ago. Remember that? The what? The Serpo thing. No, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, well, there was a bunch of people, supposedly uh, military people, were sent to a planet in Zeta Reticuli or something in exchange for some aliens. It was kind of like the movie Close Encounters. Okay. And they said that that's where that story had come from and that it had been sort of uh, used as a plot line in Close Encounters, but it had really happened. And uh, there's still people that believe that. And uh, since I knew some of the people that were involved with that, that were in counterintelligence, I thought it's really unlikely that this happened because there's no way to prove it, What's much, which is much more likely is that um, they're using it for some sort of operation, either to test people's belief systems or pass messages or whatever distract people, um, see who comes calling when you say certain things. Walter knows about this. Or something like it might have happened in, of course, in the disinformation campaign. You use the little nugget of truth and you embellish the hell out of it. So that ran its course. Actually, Richard Doty will not talk to me now because of something I said about it. Uh, Yeah, he said he was horribly offended and you never wanted to talk to me again. He just, but he won't tell you what exactly offended him? No, he won't. He, 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 he says that I, I think his attitude is I should know what I, what I pissed him off. Okay, you know what that is? That's classic asset handling be, um, uh, as, when you're a manager. Um, that's classic behavior as a manager in asset handling. Um, any kind of asset handling is the I'm pissed at you, but you're not going to know why, the leaving you in the dark thing. Cause no, it, isn't that classic wife and girlfriend behavior? Oh, yeah, they would make <laughs> uh, – yeah, I know. You would think they would be great uh, managers at this. Hmm, but uh, Yeah, but the thing is the way I'm reacting to it is – I'd like to know what it was, but it's not really that important to me. I, I would like to be able to talk, ask Doty what yeah. I want when I want to and, and talk to him and hear his fun stories and all that, but if I don't, it's no big deal. I don't want him to be pissed off at me, but I had a feeling it was kind of an act. Well, and your response goes into the file. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, but it, you know, when you mentioned that story, uh, what's the name of it again? Serpo, Serpo, Serpo. the Serpo story. It, it, it makes me think of... Um, the Philadelphia experiment and the Montauk thing, these kinds of stories that, like, seem sort of, on one level, preposterous, but on the other level... That stuff's real, man. Yeah, like, they could have happened, but but it all, it seems to always involve military intelligence, and it's just, like, it seems also very likely that these kinds of stories are used as as disinformation, or as you you know suggesting to kind of toy with people and see what what they uh, how they'll react. But I also look at some of the stories and, and look at the symbology of them, yeah. and that maybe even though they might be created, these stories created by military intelligence or some kind of intelligence, they also may be working on this sort of weird subconscious level, and that they they, they have this mythological yeah they take on their own life to them. And, it's this whole thing about a, a secret journey to another world that, that, that yeah. there's this exchange of information. You know, what, what does that symbolize? Yeah, there's the, but the newest one was called um, C-A-R-E-T, and I can't remember what that stood for. And a guy came online saying that he had worked on back-engineering alien technology in the 1970s up in uh, the Bay Area somewhere at uh, Palo Alto, I think, at the mm-hmm. Xerox something... 
I actually looked it up, and of course, there's nothing about alien back engineering. Why would there be? It was a secret. But then he produced all these documents that he said that he smuggled out of there mm -hmm. showing the alien writing. If you look it up online, just look up C-A-R-E-T or maybe C-A-R-E-T drone because somebody right before that, about a month before that, said that they'd seen this strange apparatus flying around near San Francisco and took a picture of it. And it looks it looks absolutely ridiculous. It looks like photoshopped. Something, yeah, it looks like something from a uh, from a, uh, a a model box. Yeah, exactly. Ravel did a UFO model, and this is the photo on the box. That's what it looks like. And you know, the interesting thing about that is, you know, how does that affect people? You know, all the UFO people immediately ufologists are like, this is fake. This is, you know, except for Linda Howe and Whitley Strieber sort of took it seriously and were kind of watching it. I immediately said, this has got to be some kind of intelligence thing because that's my mindset. I know, you know, there are many other possibilities. The thing that fascinated me was these beautiful drawings of these symbols. And the thing he said about these symbols, which I thought was really cool, is he said, the symbols themselves, when you put them on the materials, would cause the materials to start, if you put them together in the right way, cause the materials to start working in the way they were supposed to, just through the power of the symbols. That's that's a bizarre notion. It is a bizarre notion, but it's not unheard of in Western magic. Oh, yeah, it sounds a little McKenna-ish as well. Yeah, exactly. So I discussed yeah, this it, online, and it was it, yeah, it got a great discussion going of different people. Hmm. So and, I found that interesting. And then Colin Bennett, who wrote uh, uh, Looking for Orthon, the book about uh, Adamski, he wrote uh, a basically a Keith Thompson-ish overview of this. And you can find that online, too, if you look up Colin Bennett and Carrot, C-A-R-E-T. He wrote kind of a cultural uh, meme spread analysis of what had happened with it, how it looked, how it was uh, released to the public, and what, what it meant to people, and how whoever was doing it was very good in the Internet age at spreading ideas and stories. Yeah, there, there's a lot of that going on. What do, you, I mean, what do you think about this whole notion, this sort of buzz phrase of back engineering alien technology? I mean, do you, have you ever seen anything, Greg, where you think that is good evidence that something like that ever actually even occurred? Uh, no, what I've seen is good evidence that there are people that want us to think that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've always been highly skeptical of that notion. It, I don't know. It, it just sounds like something that disinformation people would come up with. Well, look here. When somebody is look, trying to find out what the United States is doing in their best technology, their most forward-looking, their most advanced technology, they're going to know that a lot of it is uh, covered up under, you know, and. An, uh, under the rubric of back-engineered alien technology and UFOs and agreements with the government. And, you know, out of all the UFO people and the people in this country and around the world that are looking for that, there's a bunch of people that are also looking for that uh, with, with an ear uh, or an eye or whatever, the view towards what kind of technology is the United States covering up rather than where, what planet did this technology come from. And, and uh, Walter completely agrees with me, and, he, and he, since he's my handler, he knows that he's doing a good job. <laughs> you know, um, I would say that if you've never read the works of uh, Joseph Farrell, where Nazi technology is concerned, um, this is the perfect time to mention them because really um, I would advise – here's the books I would advise. Yeah, I should have brought that up. The, the listeners um, who aren't familiar with this, who – um, want to know the answer to the same question you brought up and that you know what wh what's with this alleged back engineering of alien you know what's going on with all this read 
Reich of the Black Sun, and especially SS Brotherhood of the Bell, both by Joseph Farrell, and throw in man-made UFOs by David Hetcher Childress and Renato Vesco. You read those three, plus Henry Stevens' um, Hitler's Flying Saucer books, you see what kind of technology was seriously being developed clear back to the 1920s. And, uh, yeah, starting you, with Townsend Brown. Yeah, it, it, well... Starting even before that, I think really? uh, over in Europe, yeah, okay. and, and with uh, Victor Schauberger and them, right, and right. and actually this goes back to Tesla, and the elusive Wilson clan of the um, of the uh, airship mystery, and you're going to see a picture from about 1850 on that will give you a far different perspective of the history of the last hundred years, technology-wise, than you might have ever known before. Yeah, the upshot of this is, uh, Robert, I have a, I have a, a, a better than uh, small belief that anti-gravity was probably conquered quite a while back, and that's being used right now, and it's being covered up under the UFO thing. Uh, I have no 100% ironclad proof of this. I don't think I ever will. That's just the model I'm working with. So when you also talked to to Nick Cook, didn't you? The guy that did the Zero Point book. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, he he, you know, he confirms the same stuff, and he was a reporter for Jane's Defense Weekly, which is as mainstream as you can get. And he started looking into the stuff, and he he had you know, one of the, you know, no nothing like the power of the converted. He he said, Jesus, some of this stuff actually could be true, and it looks like it is. And I apologize, I didn't throw his book in there too. Yeah. Definitely, that's one: the hunt for Zero Point. So, yeah, that's a great uh, uh, little group of books that right there to, yeah, I, I'm kind of a little bit more excited about that whole subject right now that you brought up all those other books. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I need to, to follow up on that a bit myself. I've known all, you know, about that in a real sort of general way, but hadn't actually read any of those books. So, yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. That's how I am with the 9-11 stuff. I kind of stand to the side I'm interested. There's just so much of it, it's hard for me to... And I'm not that interested in it to the point, you know, I will listen and say, that seems interesting, that looks weird, let's see what's happened with the, what happens with this and let it inform my uh, political and uh, electoral <laughs> decisions, maybe, a bit. So, uh, are we almost out of time here? Yeah, we're almost out of time. Uh, it's probably more letting you go to bed, because I don't have a show after me, so we can run over if we want. There was one thing I wanted to mention when we were talking about the movies, and how people get their cultural literacy a little bit from the movies. It's and you said about Phil Dick being uh, uh, seeing this stuff in the you know well other people have seen it too you know where, where did 1984 come from? It seems like uh, creative people are like our canaries in a coal mine if you if you choose to listen to them sometimes maybe sometimes they're just paranoid but occasionally they'll have a point. Sometimes it comes too early. It almost never comes too late. <laughs> I think you make a great point. Uh, yeah, I mean, if it came too late, I guess it wouldn't be that interesting. Uh, <laughs> we you know, knew this last week. Quarterbacking or something like that. But, uh, he, but yeah, the, I Philip K. Dick, Robert Anton Wilson, the two we mentioned, uh, and then I also throw in there William Burroughs. These are all people that, that just yeah. so got, I got turned on to the weird characters I met in kind of weird situations, and they, they were exact. What's the phrase you used, Greg? Cultural canary in a coal mine yeah 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 that totally fits for those those writers that that got me thinking about things in new and interesting ways yeah um you know what's weird is i went and saw um and i didn't realize i was such a fan 
and every time I see one of his films, I realize I'm a fan is David Lynch. I went and saw Inland Empire, which is a movie he shot on high def, and it's the most inscrutable thing he's ever done. I'm going to have to watch it like 20 times, but I don't know why. The thing, it, it, it's really, really, really hard to follow what's going on in it. <laughs> and Classic. Lynch said when he was doing it, he didn't know what he was doing either. He would just <laughs> That's why they shot on, it took him like two years and they shot on high def because he'd say, I think we should do this with the film today. And he'd write the scenes and bring them in. Well, well, now that you bring that up, I'll, I'll, I'll plug a, a book that, from a guy I interviewed on my show. It's, uh, the guy is named, uh, Eric Wilson, and the book is The Strange World of David Lynch, Transcendental Irony from Eraserhead to Mulholland Drive. Uh-huh. It's a really, really fascinating book. What do, what does he say Mulholland Drive is actually about? What's going on there? I see a weird version of the, the Sheridan Le Fanu tale of Camilla. You see a weird version of what? Camilla, the sh- classic short story Camilla by Sheridan Le Fanu, a Victorian ghost story author who wrote the first, it were, basically it was a lesbian vampire story. And there's even the character's name Camilla in, in the movie. But if you've ever, if you're familiar with Le Fanu's work and the story of Camilla, um, it, you see it in uh, Mulholland Drive. But of course, being Lynch, that's probably just the layer that, you know, I see. Yeah, I think it's just kind of like a fun layer. But but the the um, what Wilson goes into in his book, Eric Wilson, is, is that this thing that 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 Lynch is always kind of toying with us, and he's kind of like playing in this gap. And there's this gap between what seems to be going on and what's really going on, right. or what we you know what's in our conscious mind and, and and what's in our subconscious and just all these gaps and it's it's the just you know all these things juxtaposed against one another and what's in between them is, is, is where the sort of answer is and the answer is that there's not really an answer it's this whole uh, well yeah uh, it, consciousness it, playing with consciousness and that uh, David Lynch is uh, uh, a Yeah, you know what? It's funny. It probably sneaked in on him, too. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, but Wilson uh, said that, too. And he, he didn't get it. He's never been actually able to interview Lynch. He's tried, but he's just watched all of his movies over and over and over and over yeah. again. I mean, he's, he's told me that he's watched some of his movies 40 times. Oh, Jesus. I don't think I've watched <laughs> but, any you know, movies. He wanted to be thorough on the book, and, and uh, but, uh, yeah, so that's what he says. Yeah, I would think that Lynch would probably say the same thing I think there is an answer, contrary to what you said, but we don't have the way to describe it. We can only grasp at it, where the ideas come and where the subconscious comes in and where uh, motivations come from, etc. You're saying there's an answer that Lynch consciously knows. No, no. I don't think he knows it either. Just like Robert Ah. said, he said that, uh, what did you say, Robert, that we can't find the answer? Yeah, I, th- I think, again, it, it just comes back to this gap. There's this thing of, like, where we think what may be an answer, and then there's this other thing where we know we don't know the answer, and there's just that play in between those two things. Right. And, and that that's where he's working. And, I mean, if you go all the way back to Eraserhead, Eraserhead is, 
it just seems kind of weird and nonsensical, but but it's it's doing all of that. It, it, it's uh, to there's always something being juxtaposed against something else, whether yeah. it's you against the movie or or you know the seeming what the character is and the actuality of what the character is, and it's it's what's between that 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 that's where where right. the gold is. <laughs> right, and it it just can't be described. So you have to kind of grasp at it through the medium of art and film. And um, right after I saw Mulholland Drive, I mean, sorry, Inland Empire, I actually went home and wrote a piece called uh, Making UFO Sense Often Sucks. <laughs> and it's like, and I was comparing, you know, the problem of trying to figure out what the UFO thing is to the way David Lynch tries to explain that space there, that that disconnect between understanding and what is the quote-unquote reality of a, of a situation? With UFOs, I think, is when you ignore it and say, screw it, I'm not going to try this anymore, it shows you its truest self. But the minute you get lured in and you're trying to figure it out, that's when it eludes you. Right. It's, it's a smart-ass. And Greg, you know this as well, it's when you give up. You know, it's right. when you when you give up trying to say I'm going to have the answer for this, it, it, and then it's just like the answer comes to you. Yeah. It's like a non-answer answer, but it's an answer. Yeah, it, it totally eluded you when you were trying really hard. Uh huh. It reveals itself to you because you've stopped asking, which is a <laughs> it's a classic hey. trickster shaman. Um, um, spiritual teacher kind of thing. bringing it back to what he said before. It's like getting laid when you're a guy. If you just say "screw it," I don't give a shit. That's when they want you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that is uh, that's that's good advice. You know what's funny though, because that's when you're being yourself. <laughs> oh, the complicated uh, dynamics of uh, social interaction. You, you know what's funny about three guys sitting around talking about UFOs, conspiracies, and strange phenomena, talking about anything, it all comes down <laughs> to <laughs> how do we get chicks, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. Well, I think maybe that's oh, what, maybe uh, yeah, that's what yeah, you're doing cool. with your radio uh, show, too. I don't know. Well, it's 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 all in in furtherance of what what's more interesting than sitting around and having to earn money and and uh, survive and keep and getting thrown in the poorhouse or whatever. Yeah. And uh, with that is a theme that runs throughout this show constantly. And the, the show is it's it's its own magical uh, uh, what's the word uh, operation because. Every time I talk to somebody, I learn something new. Maybe people that are listening learn something new or are pointed in a direction that may literally save their lives. That's what happened to me when I read uh, Robert Anton Wilson in that zine so many years ago. Yeah, it's all, it's all, you never know. One, one little thing you say can affect some other person in a really uh, powerful way. So it's kind of cool to think about that and sometimes we maybe take responsibility for that and uh, mm -hmm. sort of live your life with some sort of uh, notion of, of um, I don't know compassion or whatever it is yeah. that, uh, I'm, 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 I'm responsible for other people as well as myself but the thing is that if you do what you really makes you happy well I guess if it's going around and killing people and throwing them in ditches uh, I don't know about that but for most normal people you're, you are actually helping other people. Um, I've got um, people, uh, some people at this station 
just a few of them. Most of them are kind of live and let live, but their attitude is, I mean, you got to be, you got to care about this political thing, man. Yeah, it's all political issues. You know, you have to care about this. You have to care about that. If you don't care about this, there's something wrong with you. You're not a good person. Everything's going to fall apart. And that immediately makes me run the other way. Have you had uh, people on your show that are kind of like that, or is it just basically everybody's kind of like, here's my thing? This is, have you ever had a problem? Yeah, I think some people, uh, yeah, get pretty worked up about certain issues, but I, I don't usually have people on my show who are, are, I don't know, like activists or that, that uh, and where it's this whole dynamic of being very, um, um, oh, what's uh, kind of the in your face. The, Having a, a sort of morality about it, and, and right, sort of right. preaching morals, and uh, you know, I may agree with some people on some certain issues that we need to do this or that, but uh, I mean, I think you have to also be open to the idea that you, know, you don't have all the answers, and that maybe there are different ways of looking at it, and that uh, you, if you're going to tell people that they need to go and do this, well. Is, yeah, that's going to turn off some people. You you can suggest, well, hey, I think maybe you ought to look at this issue and why we're doing things a certain way, but if you come up with a better way of solving this, let me know. Yeah. I, I was talking with Ken Thomas um, on the show a couple weeks ago, and he said he'd, uh, he, had, he had known and met and known William Burroughs fairly well, I mean, as well as I guess people could. I played a piece on the show called The Do Rights mm-hmm. about people that are basically, you know, they, they do everything they're supposed to because they think it's going to get them ahead in the world and they're, how, how pathetic they are. Ken said that uh, he was talking with Burroughs once and Burroughs said, well, there's another kind of person like that too. It's the kind that will help an old lady across the street even if she doesn't want them to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's some people that, that they, they want to... Uh all you know, always being the, the do-gooder, and what they want to be seen for being the do-gooder, and, and, and not so much that they're doing good that really needs to be done. Right, and they, they just want to get you know a pat on the back or something. And there's, a, I think the people that are doing a lot of good are a lot of times doing it behind the scenes or doing it. At, yeah, you never uh, hear about them. Whatever, if you're you're giving money to a, to a homeless person that you feel really needs it at that moment, that, that you feel like not doing it out of shame or guilt, but just because you saw the person and you thought they needed the help or they asked for the help and it seemed like a legit thing and you felt right about it and not like you want to say, hey, look, I'm, I'm cool, I'm helping homeless people here or something like that. You know, you just got you to do it with the right intention. That's funny. That's exactly the, the attitude I have about it. Well, it, isn't it that it doesn't it so often turn out that the people who are public do-gooders and activists, they're, they're, a lot of them are just seeking some type of political position. I mean, I, I remember reading something about the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Tom Hayden was a model of this. Back in the 60s when Jane Fonda hooked up with him, you know, she felt like she was the real deal. And she felt like he was the real deal. And then he got elected to office and just kind of the whole persona that he had used to get into office kind of petered out. And he was just a ho-hum assemblyman or congressman or whatever and really just kind of gave it up. And that was one of the things I think that kind of affected their marriage was she was like, hey, hey, wait a minute. I thought you were really believed in this. And, and he's just one model of that. And so many, you can see this where it seems like um, maybe society in general is beginning to deal with something, but somebody who seeks political office starts 
stirring up the hornet's nest on an issue just because they have political aspirations. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's just uh, creating something that's sort of uh, very cynical. There's no there there. Yeah. <laughs> it's just I remember. Well, this will look great on my resume. Yeah. I remember seeing a documentary about John Lennon, and there was a reporter sitting there with them. She listens to what they sh- they have to say, and granted, she's you know a a cynical, probably upper middle class Eastern establishment woman. But she says, I think what you're you know it was during their uh, their um, anti war stuff, war is over, you know that kind of stuff. She said, I think you're I think you're uh, you're doing the John Lennon show and Yoko show, not the you know end the war show. And I, when I first saw that, I thought, well, how dare her? And um, actually, a friend of mine said, you know what? She might have a point there. And now I'm starting to see what that was, what was going on mm-hmm. there. Not to denigrate John Lennon, but I think he felt like he was doing good and felt real good about it. Maybe that was that was also part of it. And everybody else is thinking, well, it's a good idea how we can say anything against it because it's John Lennon and he's got such a great platform and look what he's doing with it. Mm. Yeah, I think it, it's it's also it, it's. It's always hard to sum up situations, and and I think in a lot of these situations, the person involved has some good intentions. Yeah, but they also have some uh, not so good intentions. Or it's just they get caught up in the in the system, as we were talking about the political system or whatever it is. And it's right. Just like, well, I've got to play this game, and you, and you don't realize that as you go along, the more you're playing the game, the more you're diluting what you're doing, even though you maybe started out with a good intention. They get seduced. And there, there's always degrees of it. There's a spectrum, and there's probably some people that are totally cynical, some people that are only partially cynical, some people that are are uh, completely sincere, but they're being duped, or they're completely sincere, but they let themselves you know, slip a little bit of cynicism in there. Right. Uh, well, yeah. you can say that uh, it's it's a shade better than working in an ad agency or something. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I, I, I guess it's it's we know that being that we we're so hip to the excluded middle term, that <laughs> it's rarely a black and white situation. Right. Exactly. Where, where somebody's all one or all the other, and it's just. There's just this, just this, the spectrum, and I don't know. Just gotta try to work on ourselves and be okay with with who we are and how we operate. And yeah, then the other stuff will work itself out. Yeah. Okay, um, it's ten eighteen now. My throat's getting sore. Would you like to go to sleep, Robert? If you want to stay on, that's fine too. Uh, actually, I, I do have some things I, I need to attend to. I, it's very interesting, and I'm sure we could talk for another hour or more. Yeah, but, of um, course. It's it's, uh, it's really been a pleasure. Sorry I haven't had you on before. Because, you know, usually I'm very focused on whatever that guest was, is pushing or the book they wrote or whatever. But now it's just like, hey, let's talk about some stuff that we haven't talked about for a while and see where it goes. And you know what? I told you I was going to write up a, a, a list of stuff to talk about. I didn't do that. And look what happened. Well, it worked out fine. And your <laughs> listeners should know that... that uh I haven't been on your show before, not because you haven't asked, because you've asked actually a few times, and so it's just that I've uh, always had things going or whatever, I mean, and I'm glad I, I took the time today to do it, and it, it was fun, and it was fun talking to you, Walter, as well. Yeah, nice. Uh, it was nice kind of meeting you, so to speak, here. I uh, I always learn a hell of a lot from Greg and his associates, so this is always a good learning Okay, well, great. Well, I'll have to get together for a beer or something one of these days soon. Okay. All right, thanks for having me. <clears throat> thanks so much, Robert. Okay, bye See now. Ya. Bye.
Hey, it was Robert Larson, uh, co-founder of the Excluded Middle Magazine and an inspiration for doing what we're doing now. I mean, I've known him for years, and we both started off in this kind of weird area together, and uh, we've taken different paths, but it looks like we've kind of come sort of to the same things, to the, not the same conclusions, but the same kind of uh, peace with where we're at now in our views of things and continued curiosity and open-mindedness. Do you think you could be you could uh, um, reapproach the state of things now with that group that started excluded middle you know even just as a kind of a a reunion project Yeah I guess I could um Peter Stencil the other third of the excluded middle he actually, uh, he and his wife adopted some kids, and he's very busy, and uh, wow. yeah. he has to make money to, uh, you know, he has to keep his job to uh, do that, so he doesn't, you know, if you notice this, any friends you have that have kids, you never see them again. <laughs> Peter was on the show yeah. last week, on, on Robert's show, kind of our reunion thing with our other friends, but he was only able to be on for half an hour, then they switched over to me, because they only had three lines uh, coming in to that station at KUCI. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got one here, which, of course, nobody called. Shame on you all. Robert and I always kind of had the run rough shot. Let's jump right in the middle of it, take everything with a grain of salt immediately, punk attitude. And mm-hmm. Peter had the everything's cool, uh, everything, everybody does what they want to do kind of hippie attitude. And we ha- constantly had that. Um, dynamic yeah. going, and it worked real well for the magazine, you know, because he thought we were too uptight, and we th- we thought he was too complacent. But neither of us was was either that bad. There were elements of his attitude and ours, and ours and his. Mm-hmm. So that's how it worked out so well. And uh, well, it might be interesting. Why the magazine re- even started. I mean, they, they both got busy by the fifth issue. I was just doing it. Yeah. It might be interesting to reapproach some of what you guys did because it's like. Um, it's like when you read a book at one point and then time a lot of time passes and you've learned more about a lot of subjects so that something you thought was just a passing small issue in that book now is the thing you're you've learned more about and you realize wow that's the important thing that's the part that fascinates me now you know go back and and revisit it from the current perspective yeah and i didn't get to be on the show when peter was on or hear it i'd like to hear what he has to say now the last contact I had with him, I sent him some MP3s of a uh, artist I thought sounded a lot like his music, mm-hmm. and he really appreciated it. So I, I ought to just call him and say hi and see how he's doing. Maybe I can get him on the show, and um, uh, him and Robert and I can talk and maybe do something at least online. Maybe I can actually have either one of them do a guest, guest column. I'd like to have you do one too. Sure. On uh, UFO Mystic. Because it always gets uh, people talking and gets a different perspective in, and I don't have to write for one day. <laughs> I don't know if Robert's still listening. Probably isn't. But I want to thank him for being on, and uh, I'd like to have him on again sometime. It's Radio Mysterioso. We'll be back next week, 8 to 10 p.m. Sunday night, as always. So thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And uh, here's uh, Los Supersonicos with Killing <laughs> killing an Arab in, in, uh, in, in uh, Latin American Spanish. <laughs>